Hi, I'm Will Hannafin, and welcome to this festive Christmas Day edition of Sure Twas Better. Settle in for the next hour as we trawl through RTE's extensive archive to give you a flavour of Christmas past. In the entertaining company of my uber Christmassy panel of Pauline McGlynn, Jules Call, and Emer McLeisett, who have to figure out if it was better or if it was worse back then. We find out what fair was on offer for Radio 2 hip kids back in 1981. Christmas Day on Radio 2 has a festive look with an extra early poporama at half past six. Ruth and Ian will be along first thing with plenty of surprises for our younger listeners. There are plenty of other listening goodies on Radio 2 for the Christmas season, including a rerun of the 13 episodes of the American radio version of Star Wars. Oh, yes, indeed. Happy Christmas listening on Radio 2. And even 50 years ago, people who see swam at this time of year and bragged about it were frowned upon. There are, of course, sturdier characters who continue without a break through January, February and March and all the year round. Why do they do it? Well, some of them, I suspect, are men who have otherwise failed to distinguish themselves. And they think to win admiration in their offices by throwing out in midwinter an occasional remark like, there was quite a nip in the water this morning not realising that their listeners regard them as bores rather than as heroes. When it came to Christmas presents back in the old days, I didn't know Santa was prone to giving out single cigarettes on his travels. You could get a cornet for 12 rainbow toffees, a gobstopper, Peggy's leg, two of Milroy's nutty favours, a fizz bank, a lucky dip, and an electric bell. That's a licorice thing with, with, with sweetening. You know, lucky lumps. And God forgive us. We get a halfpenny cigarette and a match. We'll hear more about Lucky Lumps later in the programme. But first today, we go back 42 years to listen to the Paparama Christmas Day edition from 1981. Paparama was a young people's radio show presented by the likes of Barry Lang, Ruth Buchanan and Ian Dempsey. It was broadcast weekly on RTE Radio 2, which is now 2FM. In the 1981 Christmas Day edition, we hear from a young Ian Dempsey and Ruth Buchanan fielding children's calls as they report to the nation what present Santa has brought them that year. And now we've got Jerry Davis on from Walkinstown in Dublin 12 on line 2. Hello, Jerry. Hello. How are you? Fully well. What age are you now, Jerry? Nine. You're nine years old, and where do you go to school? Finchley. Oh, that's a very good school, isn't it? Yeah. Well, what did Santa Claus bring you? Super Striker. What Super Striker? It's a little football game and you press the man's head and... Oh, the same as the other fella. There was yeah. somebody else on earlier on who got that as well. And you get all the two teams, you get 22 players. Yeah. And what about the ref? You don't get them. You don't get the ref. But maybe you can buy the ref later on. Maybe somebody could buy it for your birthday. Yeah. I think you're able to get those as well. <clears throat> right, Jerry. well, we're going to ask you to say a tongue twister five times, all right? Now, we asked everybody else to say a tongue twister ten times, but this one's a little bit longer, and it's just the first line of a well-known tongue twister. She sells seashells by the seashore. Five times. See if you can do it, Jerry. Seashells. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by, by the sh- seashore. <laughs> Go on. Do it again. She sells seashells by the seashore. <laughs> she sells seashells by the seashore. She sells for the seashore. That's, That's wonderful, Jerry. Well done. Jerry Davis in Walkinstown in Dublin 12. Would you like to say hello to anybody while you're on to us? Yeah, I'd like to say hello to me auntie, to me auntie and uncle down in Limerick and my aunt, me, me granny. And my two grannies down in Limerick and my 
another one down in Offaly. I'd like to, and I'd like to say hello to my next door neighbour, Mrs. Clare. Right, great stuff, Jerry. So you've won a prize on Poporama this morning for Christmas Day, an extra Christmas present. And just before you go, would you like to try it once more? She shall see she she Bye. Hi, Hi. Super Striker was a five-a-side football game which was a lot like Subutio. It was played on a hard board and you had to push the players' heads to make them kick. And, notoriously, there was no ref. OK, let's find out what our panel of Pauline McGlynn, Emer McLeisett and Jules Call made of the Christmas Day Poporama. By the way, that quiz really makes me want to say how many saws could a seesaw see if a seesaw could saw saws? Phew, I made it. Do I win a prize? Anyway, guys, what do you think? Ah, oh, that's adorable, isn't it? It certainly is. Well, welcome to my world. I can't do tongue twisters either, and no, they're supposed to be very good for getting you ready for the acting. But isn't it? I mean, Ian Dempsey and Ruth Buchanan making a nine-year-old sound like he's drunk because there's <laughs> no way you can ever attempt those and get them wrong and not, you know, sound like you. Had and they're always two funny. fingers of pale cherry. I was. I'm glad they gave him a prize at the end. I, I was like, why are they getting them to say that tongue twister? Then they're going to be like, and you want to say hello to your neighbours? Poor Jerry. I was glad he got something. Oh yeah, but I'll tell you the one question from it all: Why was there no ref with that super striker game? <laughs> I'm sorry, I will be losing sleep about that now. How mean does a toy company have to be? Yeah, not to put in the ref as well. Sure, you can't have a game of football without the ref. Oh no, I, I, just, I'm a bit worried now. Uh, all told that uh, that clip I used to love um, later than, than this went out with Ian Dempsey used to do the, the den or Dempsey's Den on Christmas morning oh it was magic and you'd get up and turn it on first thing and be opening the presents from Santa oh it was so good I'm old enough to remember Ian Dempsey's oldest son being born live on te- not live he wasn't born live on <laughs> Not even live on radio, was he born? But I think Ian Dempsey was presenting Dempsey's Den and he disappeared mid-show. And then the next day he was like, oh, my wife had a baby. I've subsequently met that young man. He's, uh, you know, fully grown adult. I feel ancient. Wow. <laughs> that is amazing. This next clip is from a programme entitled Christmas Miscellany, which was first broadcast on Christmas Day in 1968. Here, the speaker casts a cold eye on the bragging of sea swimmers. And this was long before the era of dry robes and the Wim Hof method. Back in those days, the 40-foot swimming spot was controversial as it was male-only and was subject to frequent protests by feminist organisations. For example, the following year, in 1969, a group of women called the Dublin City Women's Invasionary Force held a demo about the prohibition on women at the swimming point in Dublin, Sandy Cove. But let's hear now from our anti-sea swimmer. These mornings, when a wintry blast nearly takes the nose off you the moment you emerge from your hall door, there are still blithe characters making their way with their towels over their arms to the 40-foot and other swimming places for their before-breakfast plunge. I did it myself until mid-October, but then the autumn of 1968 was a very mild one. The mornings have become far too raw for me now. Why do these others continue until Christmas Day and then take it up again on the 17th of March? For that's the usual 40-foot practice. There are, of course, sturdier characters who continue without a break through January, February and March and all the year round. Why do they do it? Well, some of them, I suspect, are men who have otherwise failed to distinguish themselves and they think to win admiration in their offices by throwing out in midwinter an occasional remark like, there was quite a nip in the water this morning. 
not realizing that their listeners regard them as bores rather than as heroes. I suppose these are a minority. Most swimmers just like it, and they experience a great sense of well-being as they towel themselves on dry land again. Let's see what Pauline, Jules and Emer think of all that. <laughs> this is gas to think that the whole debate was going on even back then. Uh-huh. Well, I, I don't know. It's very sour grapes, this one, isn't it? It's, it's a little bit. Yes. Yeah. He, he couldn't go past October because the weather got a bit wintry. And um, Blythe characters, uh, you know, were are boasting that they did get into the sea. Why is that so wrong? He's almost the worst of two worlds because he is a sea swimmer himself. Exactly. <laughs> and he went to great pains to tell us he was. But then he also dislikes other sea swimmers who were better than him at him. Hardier types, yeah. Hardier, but Blythe characters. I, I mean, that is um, amazing. Gas, isn't it? Because the coldest time is actually March. So the whole Christmas swim thing, you know, it's not actually that big a difference between October and, and getting in. But you lose, I am one of these Blythe characters swimming <laughs> boards. And I live in Dunleary and I'll be there on Christmas Day with my Santee hat on. Good. Getting into the sea yeah. for the thrill of it. But um, yeah, it's not actually that cold. So I don't know what he's giving out about. You know, I, I, I kind of love it because you can also tell that he put some thought into this. Mm. That was written down before him. Yeah. You know, that um, little piece I'm, that he read out. So he took some time to choose um, his adjectives and um, and his slagging off. I'm trying to imagine him. This was 1968 so there wasn't a dry robe to be seen. How oh. could he <laughs> I hope he had one of those ones. You know the toweling ones that had a little oh, bit of yeah. elastic that your mother would make you uh, around the neck and you got changed <laughs> under that. Yeah. And I hope he had one of those that was quite, quite And ugly. he'd be hating himself for yeah. it. He'd be like, I'm not tough enough to go without one of these. <laughs> Did you know that the 1966 census showed that only 823 women worked in Ireland as executives and managers and that only one quarter of the workforce was female? Let's listen now to an item about getting more women involved in management with engineering professor Michael Fogarty speaking about a whole new world that was opening up back in 1969. In a paper presented on Monday night to the Institution of Civil Engineers of Ireland, Professor Michael Fogarty spoke about women in top jobs. Professor Fogarty, do you believe there's a need for women in management in Ireland? I do. Uh, There's a big increase going on anyway in the number of women, particularly in industrial jobs. And um, from the point of view of national economic planning, uh, we need all the brains we can get at the top, and after all, women have got half of them. I should say there's a pretty big demand coming from women themselves anyway, because you're getting more and more women with uh, good uh, professional and educational qualifications. And one of the things you find all over the world is once you give women uh, this sort of qualification, then they're going to insist on, on using it. Do you think that women have the ability to manage? I do. Uh, it's a bit difficult to test, because of course women haven't had all that opportunity. But the thing that's really convinced me is looking at a lot of cases where you get, say, the family firm, and it may be the husband dies or the father dies and the wife or the daughter takes over. And uh, you find again and again, I found this not only for Britain, which I've been examining, but for Germany as well, that uh, uh, the woman does just as well as um, a man would have done in the same circumstances. They come in exactly on the same basis, they're just pitchforked into the job, and uh, you find that uh, the woman comes out just as well. Why do you think there's this inbuilt prejudice against women in Ireland, in, in top jobs or in management? I don't know that this is special to Ireland. Uh, there is a prejudice pretty well everywhere. I've even found it in um, East European countries where 
uh, they've been trying for years now to uh, break it down, and certainly in principle they don't have any. But I think it's not just a question of prejudice, it's also a question of um, adjusting the habits uh, of the way you recruit people and train people and promote people to uh, meet the rather different conditions of women. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the problem of married women, because it, once you start talking about women in top jobs, you mean older women, and most of them are married. And uh, the married women are always likely to be taking a break when they have small children. And again, this is something I found in Britain, that um, the bright young British university women graduates are quite determined that they'll have their careers all right, but they're not going to uh, neglect their children in the process. And one thing they insist on is that they're going to be out of work, or at least only doing perhaps a part-time job or work at home, uh, while they've got children under three. Well, that, of course, means that um, they'll be coming up for promotion uh, later in life than the men would have done. It means that they're out for a bit. They may need uh, help to get back in, to retrain, and so on. And uh, this is all very worthwhile from the point of view of employers, but it's just something that employers have not been used to doing. The line of questioning there was worrying me at the start. Yeah. Is there need for women in management? Do they have the ability to manage? <laughs> and then it turns out women wanting it all, even yes. then. What? A career and a family. Um, although he was fair about it. He um, was. He was, in know. fairness. <laughs> and it didn't stop there. I think the general feeling has been that for that sort of age, as the children under, say, two and a half or three, uh, really home is the best place. Uh, though home, of course, doesn't necessarily mean... Um, exclusively as a mother. And one of the things that is coming out of yes. the social research is that fathers have something to, uh, to do on this too. And I think grandmothers, you see this uh, here a lot. You oh, know, yes. uh, a mother possibly has a part-time job and grandmother Well, this is something child. to watch on town planning mm. particularly. I mean, do you break yes. the family up or do you really respect the value of the community and, and keep them together? Yes. The wonder in his voice as he's like, do you know fathers have yes. something to do in this as well? Yeah, it's wonderful. You know, in the, the earlier when he said you, that women have got half the brains, I was I was really kind of worried that he was going to be slagging off the I whole women in management thing. Yeah, thing. Um, but he meant like of all the brains, yeah, if there's half men and half women, yeah. it's great. And here he is now, yeah, putting fathers into the mix and and grandmothers who yeah. are still very important. But interesting, isn't it, the town planning thing? Yeah, it's good to see that they were doing those. So Social surveys, yeah. 1969. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm impressed with this. Mm, yeah. Me too. Professor Michael just kept on digging. Professor, in your research, you found that women have very definite attitudes towards men. Would you like to comment on this? Well, one of the most revealing things about this particular project has been I've been reading a whole lot of comments and getting a lot of comments uh, by women on how they see men. And, uh, you know, I don't really like the picture of myself that comes out. I mean, there I am. You know, I spend my time in the pub. I do half the business of the office there. When I get back home again, uh, I mean, the girls in the office are there for my personal use, as you might say. And um, it does leave me sort of feeling that if we men have got some of the women as wrong as some of the women have obviously got some of us men, <laughs> then maybe those women have really got a problem after all. <laughs> Professor Fogarty, Joan O'Connell, thank you both very much. No, thank you. Women there for my personal use? <laughs> I, no, I, I think that was just a, a, poor, a poor choice, choice of, 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 of yeah. words because I, I think he's um, he seems pretty fair all round, doesn't he? But interesting that he would say, I do half my work in the office and half in the pub. Yeah. Oh. Well, happy days. He sounded like a man who's gone back to the office after having this revelation and looked around at the women and gone... What do they think of me? It's <laughs> yes. never given it a moment's thought oh, before. Yeah, the patriarchy. Worried. Mm. Oh, yeah.
Just in some cocktail bar When I met you I picked you out and pulled you up And turned you around Turned you into someone new Now five years later on You got the world at your feet Success has been so easy on you But don't forget that I'm the one Who put you where you are now I can put you back down Let's take another trip down memory lane now from 1968. And this was a show called Round the Christmas Tree, presented by the late Larry Gogan. One of the mainstays of the show was the veteran actor Noel Purcell. He was a distinguished actor known for his flowing beard who appeared on stage, screen and television. For example, he was in the 1956 movie Moby Dick, directed by John Huston, and also the 1962 film Mutiny on the Bounty. Here he brings us back to his Christmas childhood. Anyone remember Lucky Lumps? You could get a Cornetford, 12 rainbow toffees, a gobstopper, Peggy's leg, two of Milroy's nutty favours, a fizz bank, a lucky dip, and an electric bell. That's a licorice thing with, with, with sweet in it, you know. Lucky Lumps. And God forgive us, we get a halfpenny cigarette in our match. God, no matter what age you are, when you hear childhood sweets being mentioned, oh, isn't yeah. it amazing how you can just light up? It's yeah. always special to hear all the names. Yeah, it, it is. And lucky lumps. Lucky I'm not sure lump. I ever had one, but I must have had. Electric oh, bell. I did anyone get lucky lumps this morning? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the halfpenny cigarette is pretty, pretty yes. interesting. Oh, and a match to make sure you weren't hampered in any way. But wow. you know, I, I remember somebody who had a very, very bad asthma telling me once that they were recommended to take 
up smoking because it helped them breathing. Oh, or, is, I, I think they meant inhaling, maybe, and that or whatever. But it can't have been any good for this man. Um, it, it, and yes, here there was a whole culture of starting <laughs> wow. the kids off properly. It's like you know when um, uh, you'd be given the watered down glass of wine yes. by the mammy, you know, to so that you'd you know, ease yourself in, like the French, <laughs> you know, the old drinking. Continental. The same with uh, the cigarettes, obviously, in Ireland. Extraordinary. Isn't That's it mad how attitudes to, to cigarettes and smoking and everything like that ha- have changed yeah. so much? I can remember my dad walking around Dunn stores, pushing the trolley, smoking a fag. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. And even yeah. sweets now are kind of, you know, come with a health warning, yeah. don't yeah. they? Um, so for uh, all the nostalgic things, I mean, you probably can't get most of them anymore. You can mm. get a licorice stick, but I don't know if it's electric. No lucky lumps for us. No yeah, don't lucky lumps. lumps. No. Where would this programme be without the vintage adverts? This one is from 1975 and it features the great voice of Bill Golding. It'll brighten up your lives, literally. She's the girl with the golden tan. The girl every man admires and every other girl envies. Maybe she got it in Tahiti or Tenerife. At least that's what she'd like you to think. Maybe not. Because to get a tan like hers, you needn't even cross your own doorstep, if you know the secret. A Philips Sunray lamp. In the comfort of your own home in just a few minutes every day, you could build up a beautiful tan and keep it all year round with a Philips Sunray lamp. The inexpensive way to look a million dollars. Right, Pauline, Jules and Deemer, do your worst. Sorry, how powerful was that bulb? That is quite, yeah, um, my imagination is in overdrive here. I, I don't know whether it's right right for me to say this, but that ad has made me very happy. Well, his voice would sell me anything. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. I'll, I'll take it, whatever it is. I like when, when he said, did she get it into Haiti? Yeah. <laughs> to look a million dollars. Yeah. Oh, wow. Do you um, think now this was like a lamp, like a desk lamp, or was it a full stand-up sunbed? Yeah. I, I wonder was when this once you opened up in front of your face and it oh, lit maybe. up and gave you yeah. tan fried you probably but I mean if it was claiming to tan you it must have been yeah, extremely it, powerful yes it can't have been just a, just a, a, a very powerful bulb yeah, yeah it must have had some rays in there yeah. this is before all the goggles and obviously we learned all about sunbeds so. yeah yeah well wow. I mean you can still walk in get a, get a sunbed, mm. to de- sunbed today incredibly yeah. but um, 1975 yeah for some reason I feel like these were still around in my childhood like somewhere oh. in the back of my mind I'm like did somebody's mother have one yes. of these in the, in the spare room yeah. yeah and also like if it was just a lamp and we're not talking a bed here would you have to have had different sessions <laughs> You know, for like um, different areas, areas like <laughs> presumably start with the face. Um, you know, then put the bit of makeup on the neck while you were trying to get the neck hard. You'd be like, not the dinner while the doing neck. the right leg. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you know, do not you now, to... darling. I'm just doing my forearms. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, so many questions. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it probably blew. Every fuse. Uh, every fuse on the street. Yeah, you couldn't yeah. have it and the toaster on at the same no, time. No, no. And in fact, our neighbours, the Rays, two doors up, we used to have an electric mix that you had to warn them you were going to use because it would blow everything. <laughs> You're kidding. Um, yeah, on the street. Yeah, it's only one house could have electricity when you were using it. Oh I'm God. wondering if the sunray lamp was such a thing. Possibly. A similar thing. Yeah. yeah. I'd be worth it though because you'd be a golden yeah. millionaire goddess. Golden million dollar goddess. <laughs> 
Anxiety about what we eat and which foods are good for us isn't just a present-day concern. Here, listen to a health and wellness programme from 1977. It was called Sound as a Bell and was presented by Emer O'Kelly. Talking of, uh, as uh, people from the Irish nation, well, we have been recognised as, we say, taking a lot of food or we're supposed to be the best fed. But in actual fact, it's not really that we're the best fed. It's, it's that we have the highest calorie intake which is quite a different thing. And I think the Irish as a nation do uh, have a very high intake of calories, which come mainly from carbohydrate foods. These are the sugary foods. They eat a lot of uh, sweets and chocolates and cakes. They take a lot of alcohol as well. We have a, a lot of uh, our national, of our money, in fact, is mm. spent on alcohol. And alcohol is a very poor nutritional value. And again, it is very high in calories. So I think the Irish people generally, they take too much carbohydrate. Perhaps they also take too much of the animal fats, like these mm. are the cream and the butter and the margarine. And uh, they also take a lot of alcohol. Mm. In other words, cut down on the booze and cut down on too much fatty food and stop eating chocolates between meals and you'll probably do all right. Is that the general idea? Yes, I would think so. Right, thank you very much indeed, Mary Maloney. Well, I think this is one occasion on which we could justifiably use the phrase that we've heard an awful lot and we've had a lot of food for thought. So until next week, sound as a bell. This is Imro Kelly saying goodbye and good health. Now it's time for our Sure Twas Better panel of Pauline, Jules and Emer one more time. What did you make of all that? Was there food for thought? Now it's 40 years later and we still hear the same things. I Isn't know. That? Look at where, what is life without butter and I booze? I'm sorry. Sometimes they're like, butter's good for you, butter's bad for you. No, butter's good yeah. for you, eat more, but no, it's bad for you again. I mean, they were giving children cigarettes and they're stopping. <laughs> No, it's 69. Oh, my God. Well, I'm just glad that the potato didn't get a slagging off. Yes, I'm tired of it being, you know, slated as not, being... Not on the Irish national airwaves. You couldn't slag no, off the potato. No, I'm sorry. And if it, if that's me just playing to a cliche, I don't care. Potatoes with butter and indeed some hooch. Um, <laughs> what could be better? That's that's fine. That's my desert island. You've got to have your, your Bailey's potatoes today, <laughs> Bobby. <laughs> It's Christmas! <laughs> <laughs>
here's another gem from the archives and a trip down memory lane from 1969 with a contributor who has quite a lot to say about hitchhiking. At that time, there were only 348,000 licensed private vehicles in Ireland. Contrast that with 2023, where there are over 2.9 million licensed cars. So a lot of people didn't have cars and resorted to hitchhiking to get from A to B. With mixed results, have a listen. Some weeks ago, in Dear Sir or Madam, a young hitchhiker's letter was read out. Dear Sir or Madam is the radio programme which may be heard on Saturday evening in which listeners air their grievances. Now, this particular listener was rather angry because she set out from Dublin to Ackle and it took her six hours to get there, relying on other people's cars. Not bad going, I thought to myself. There's many the one who'd be content to do it in that time in her own car. She was, she told us, an attractive girl, yet some of the male species in their cars didn't bother to pick her up. Well, well, so that's what hitchhikers think of us. If we give them a lift, we're only doing what is expected of us. Let me say what I think might have been in the mind of some of the motorists who passed. In the brave days of old, when I first owned a car, I gave a lift to anyone I could. However, I gradually became, if not disillusioned, well, far from illusioned with the ways of the hitchhiker. They are abominably mean. I've had them in my car, smoking cigarettes and not offering me one. And as it happens, I don't smoke. I gave two university students a lift from Dublin to Killarney one day, almost 200 miles. They passed the time telling me about their parents, six-cabin cruiser and swimming pool, yet didn't buy a thruppenny ice cream for a youngster I had in the car. A nod gesture of appreciation would be welcome. By the way, the only people who have asked me in for a drink after a lift were some Irish boys I picked up one day. Not that I accepted the offer, but it was nice to be asked. Now, I think that we should all be prepared to accept criticism of our country. Well, I hold it in theory anyway. But after you, in your car, in your country, have given a lift to a foreign hitchhiker who starts telling you that the Irish hostels are dirty or that he's been done up to the eyes by unscrupulous Irish shopkeepers or that she doesn't like Irish boys, the theory flies out the car window and you begin to wonder why you have imposed this wailing foreign Jonah on yourself. Last year, I gave a young Swiss boy a lift, who immediately tried to sell me a watch from a store of five or six that he had. I was half tempted to turn him over to the guards as he was breaking the law, but instead I dropped him at the next town. The greatest fallacy about hitchhikers is that they will pass the time on the journey more quickly. I've had some who fell asleep in the car almost immediately they got in. Others have answered in monosyllables. And girls are the chief offenders in this. They apparently think their company is enough. I picked up a French girl recently, and when she got into the car, I asked her, Where are you from? She snapped back. Always the same questions. Where are you from? Where are you going to? What countries have you been to? That was the end of that conversation. As talkers of interest, I have, however, found out that an American university student is by far the most articulate and the most interesting. If he or she has criticism to offer, it is valid and based on experience, and it is delivered with such easy charm that it is acceptable. Having said that, I suddenly realized that I may have been too sweeping in my condemnation of hitchhikers. That would be unfair. Some of them are interesting. It is rewarding giving a lift to someone who needs it and is genuinely appreciative. I remember one very wet day giving a lift to a Swedish boy 
who almost slumped up when he got into the car. He seemed a very sick boy to me, and in the next town, Port Leisha, I called into the hospital with him where a doctor confirmed that he was sick and had a raging temperature and he kept him in. On my way back, I called into the hospital to see how he was getting on and he was about to be discharged, having had, had acute pneumonia. I brought him back to Dublin with me where we had a meal together. He thanked me and asked me for my name and address. Within a fortnight, I had had a letter from his parents enclosing a gift of crystal glass. But... There are Swedes and Swedes. I recently gave a lift to a young Swedish girl who told me that she had no money, that she'd been sleeping out, but that her parents were sending her on some money. She was dressed as a beatnik. I offered her a bed in our house for a few nights, which she accepted. We arrived at my home, and I went in to tell my wife, leaving the Swede in the company of a French girl who was staying with us. You won't believe what the Swede asked our young French friend. Are they good family. The next time I offer one a lift, I think I'll first ask them if they can accept one from someone whose name isn't in the almanac, the Gotha. Oh, it's such a mixture of altruism <laughs> and generosity oh. in one way. <laughs> and then, you know, raging that somebody would be checking that they hadn't accepted a lift. Yeah. Like he had such a range of punters that he picked up the potluck. Of... Well, that's what I'm wondering. Was he just driving around picking people up? Yeah. <laughs> and if he was yes. so resentful, why did he just not drive past if he had so many bad experiences? Maybe. I mean, this is from 1969. And I would assume going by this, it was very much part of, part of the culture yes. to be picking up, mm-hmm. up um, hitchhikers. But, I mean, he he was just really looking for the perfect one, one that wasn't abominably mean. <laughs> yes, I, I wonder, as you've said it now, now I feel we have a novel in us um, about yeah, travelling salesmen, perhaps, yeah. around Ireland. Um, you know, um, if, if somebody isn't um, up to chatting to him or they are kind of protecting themselves or won't answer his questions like, where are you from, then maybe he deals with them Amazing. you know <laughs> I also enjoyed his extremely German French accent oh, that oh yeah fantastic <laughs> well obviously it's it's very accurate because he's had them all in the car you know yeah. oh yeah, yeah. He's, it's made me think like <laughs> when's the last time you saw a, hitch, a hitchhiker yeah, I know. have you ever done it I did it definitely did as a teenager I grew up in the countryside not a huge amount but I mean it was means to an end you, it, uh, yeah. you just had no choice sometimes yeah well I, I remember um, getting a lift back from Lucan which I was regarded the countryside when I was a student in, in Trinity but I had a friend with me and everything and we were very grateful of that mm. of that lift because we there were no buses and yeah. we had no money anyway I remember driving know? down to, I think it was Carlo with my dad and we were picking up one of my brothers to bring him home for Christmas my dad picked up two hitchhikers and they had as many bags and I remember being squashed <laughs> yeah. into the back of the car with all these rucksacks yeah. but yeah it was I mean I don't think you'd see much of it these days no no and I, I think with motorways and everything yeah. you can't be on the motorway Six hours Dublin to Ackle in 1969. That does not sound bad. Yeah, that is, that's good going, really. But he seems to have driven all around the country. And isn't it interesting that um, the Americans, he found them, because they get slagged off as being a bit, vacuous you know or but whatever they do, love, they do love the chat uh, yeah so and he they, found them very intelligent yeah. and informative I think only the students though and only the educated uh, ones the, I see. that was his yes his I, mm-hmm. I hear you I think maybe they were the only ones willing to talk to him so he you know gleaned yeah. the most from them the rest of them were like oh jeez <laughs> and also now this is just a detail for the novel um, <laughs> he he had a small child in the car with him at one stage yeah. perfect cover Yeah, perfect cover mm. just saying 
Here are some more tips about hitchhiking from a TV programme called Borderline, which was broadcast in April 1987. The reporters are Magella Nolan and Ronan Johnson. Borderline was a Saturday morning teenage programme that covered areas like music and fashion. Let's see how our 1980s hitchhikers were getting on. Where are you heading? Carlow. Is it Carlow Town? Or? Well, it's, it's outside Carlow actually, but uh, I always put Carlow on it just to give a rough idea where I'm going, you know. But um, you see, I live outside Carlow and it's it's usually hard to, it's hard to put, you know, you can't really put on, on the sign where exactly I'm going because it's, it's a place called uh, Ballytor and uh, I don't think many people know of it. Do you find so the sign helps? It does, yeah, an awful lot, yeah. Do you find the weather makes a difference if it's raining? Do you get a little quicker? No, no difference. I hit last Friday and I was lashing and took me ages and it was a great day today and I got a lift immediately. Where about you go to? Uh, Cullen, kind of loud. Uh, how far away is that? Uh, 25 mile about. Do you do that all the time? Uh, about two or three times a week. And uh, do you have any problems getting lift? Uh, well, it can be there. Last week there was very hard to get home. Got caught in the rain, I was at two hours hitching. How long have you been hitching here? About an hour now. And uh, obviously, no luck. Do you no. usually have to wait this long? No, I usually about quite an hour to be most. I notice you're using the sign, do you find it works? Okay, we've got Dublin on the other side of the sign there. Yeah, i got Dublin on the other side. You've had this all week, obviously, have you? <laughs> I hate stuff from Limerick, so I don't have coming up to Dublin. Really? No problem at all. So is it, the, is it the people going back down the country aren't as easy giving lifts or what? Seems that way at the moment, yeah. I find it easier with somebody, you know, you've got someone to talk to if you're on the road a long time. But um, you get to drive quicker on your own. Well, look, the price of the train fares and bus fares at the moment, um, any students or anything can't afford them. So, um, yeah, it's well worth hitchhiking. It's a good experience anyway. Waiting about 40 minutes now. 40 minutes? 40 minutes yeah. That's yeah. quite a while, isn't it? It's very unusual here. It's usually about 20 minutes at the most around here. So is it because there's two of you that, that you're having problems going down? Well, or? Usually we hitch home together and yeah, we hitch right. together. And how do you find it, like, hitching with two people? Do you find it easier on your own or with two? Oh, yeah, it's a lot easier for a girl on her own anyway. Really? Yeah. But yeah. there was one day I was here, There was I was in the middle of two fellas and the car stopped between the two just to pick up the girl. Really? It was me, yeah. The, the driver even passed comment on it. It's time to listen to some delightful Christmas callers from Paparama back in 1981 now with the young Ian Dempsey and Ruth Buchanan. Are you in sixth class yet or no, fifth? I'm in fifth? You're in fifth. So you've one more year there, have you? Yeah. Great. Well, would you like to say hello to anyone now that you're on Paparama? Yeah, well, um, say hello to Mummy, Daddy, um, my nanny, she's asleep in the bedroom beside me, um, oh. my Auntie Anne, um, my Uncle John, they're home from England for the Christmas. So you have a great family gathering, have you, today? Yeah, and today? there's Maeve and Christy, who's asleep in the bed inside. And uh, there's my sister Anne, she's going around on a roller skates like she got <laughs> this morning. And uh, my Uncle Sean, he's drinking the tea in the kitchen. He made the pot of tea for you all, did yeah. he? <laughs> ah, that's great. There's nothing like it, is there, John? No. So anyway, you must have about 10 or 12 people there today, have you? Oh, well, there's a lot and there's more to come today. More, more to come. Is your mother going to feed them all today? Yeah, well, I hope so. Oh, that's fantastic. So she's going to be very busy. I hope you help her. Give her a hand, will you, with the washing up? Mm, might. You might? <laughs> I think you should. She hasn't got a dishwasher, has she? No. Well, my husband always tells me that we have two dishwashers, my two hands. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't need one. John, uh, now I'm going to ask you to do something to see if you can get yourself a proper lava prize today. Can you whistle? Yeah. Right, we want you to whistle, making your mind up. Um... Oh, 
<laughs> your whistle's gone. Yes. You'd need to wet your lips with something, wouldn't you? <laughs> a drop of the tea that your uncle has made out yeah. there in the kitchen. <laughs> ah, well, John, I think you did very well anyway. Because I was thinking that was quite a hard song to sort of just get at the, you know, the yeah. spur of the moment. But you did very well, got it immediately, and si whistled us a good bit of it. Congratulations, John. Okay. And thanks for calling us. Okay. Merry uh, Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too. Bye. Bye. Nothing says great radio like an 11-year-old blowing aggressively <laughs> <laughs> Making your man nap. What a picture he painted. Ooh. It was like Charlie Buckets. No. <laughs> I used all the people sleeping here Hats and there. I love the way he was, he was saying brilliant. hello to people and half the world sleep. They're right beside him. Oh, oh he's adorable. And I also love, it's the real Irish thing, isn't it, that they're home for the, the Christmas. Christmas. It's not uh, Christmas, it's the, the Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, um, fantastic. <laughs> it's that man again, Larry Gogan from the early 1980s and he's giving us a sneak preview of what the hip kids were listening to on Radio 2, now called 2FM. Let's have a listen. Christmas Day on Radio 2 has a festive look with an extra early poporama at half past six. Ruth and Ian will be along first thing with plenty of surprises for our younger listeners. Quizzes, requests, phone calls and the Christmas Day birthday book. They'll be followed at five past nine by the Paul Clark Christmas Show and among the people who will be dropping in for a chat with Paul are Frank Kelly and the Fury Brothers. Yours truly Larry Gogan will be here between half eleven and two followed by three hours of Jim O'Neill, Thing and Glum in Jim's Christmas Pud Special. There's a bumper two-hour slice of rock steady at five o'clock with Jerry Ryan, then a documentary about the Bothy band, and I'll be around again at eight o'clock to host the all-winners European pop jury when 2,000 panellists from six European countries will be voting the top European pop disc of 1981. Keep a Country with Pascal Mooney in the saddle is at nine, Barry Lang's American music show is at ten, and we close down with a special rock show when Dave Fanny will be playing the year's best rock tracks chosen by the show's listeners. There are plenty of other listening goodies on Radio 2 for the Christmas season, including a rerun of the 13 episodes of the American radio version of Star Wars, a documentary about musician Sonny Condell, a four-part history of film music called Celluloid Pop, and a special guest suite with Randy Crawford, as well as all your regular favourites. Oh, yes, indeed. Happy Christmas listening on Radio 2. Oh, what a voice. I mean, Larry Gogan. Larry Gogan's yeah, voice. yes. Nobody did it like Larry. Oh, no. I was no. just thinking, I hope to God some of his Christmas Day fair was pre recorded because otherwise he was in and out of RG. He'd have no dinner. Yeah. I'm exhausted listening to that yeah. schedule. And he must have been exhausted doing that long promo for it. Great radio. The Star Wars thing, what was that? Uh, all 73 million episodes of what? In a radio yeah. play? In or a radio play. What? Yeah, for a first for me. Can I give mention, though, to um, Frank Kelly was going to be on talking, right? Um, and as we were talking about sea swimming earlier, he yeah. was a 40 footer um, swimmer, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, even on Christmas Day. So, just for the, um, he was one of the blithe characters that were being given out um, about earlier on. Interesting. Yeah, there you are. It's time to take a trip back now to the glory days of aviation and a behind-the-scenes documentary at Shannon Airport in the 1950s. There was plenty to declare. The pilots were not the only ones who had to go through a pre-flight procedures. So had the hostesses, and here now were three small segments which contained, first of all, the check by the hostess, a check for drinks, and finally visitors to the Shannon duty-free shop. One ACL pad, uh, yes. 14 magazine covers, yes. 
Um, 48 glasses. Yes. 60 pink cups. Yes, 60. 60 trays. Yes. One glass jug. All right. Two yes. sugar bowls. Yes. Four serving trays. Yes. Now the documentation. Um, 60 Irish landing cards. Yes. 60 French landing cards. Uh, yes. 60 British landing cards. Yes. The Department of Agriculture notices. There should two be two of those. Yes. That's right. Um, soup. Yes. Serviettes. Yes. Timetables. Uh, Timetables. Yes. Yes, there are some. Cotton wool. Yes. Not to be occupied notices. Yes. Torches, number yes. one. Wait, I see if they're all right. And number four. Yes. Both working? Both working, yes. Good. A Viscount glass container? Yes. Oh, I think that's a lot. 31 bottles of Irish. Yes, correct. 44 bottles of Scotch whisky. Correct. 40 bottles of gin. Yes. 28 bottles of brandy. Correct. 7 bottles of sherry. Yes. 12 cans of Guinness. Correct. 1,100 cigarettes. Yes. Bar Six. forms in order. Yes. Bar forms in order. Five bar forms. Okay. Six packets of sweets, barley sugar. What is the use of those watch with a little tire around it? Well, it's a key ring for your car. Oh, very good. You can also have it as a watch for your desk when you're not when you take your key. Oh, and you even have a calendar on it. Yes. Beautiful. And is it shockproof with those? Yes, yes. It's very convenient. So if you, if somebody steals your car, you still have the watch. <laughs> I'd like to see what you have uh, in the way of something good as far as a cashmere sweater goes. Well, this is a very nice. It's uh, Scotch cashmere drumland rig. Very nice, fully fashioned. Twenty-one dollars. I also have. Uh, this style, the neckline, it's $18, it's also 100%. And this is the V-neck and the other is the uh, straight, the round color. Yes. Very interesting. It's very good quality. Yes, I know it's also fashioned. Yes, it's fully fashioned and it's 100% Scotch. Yes, uh, what else do we have in the style of... Uh, so it's something li like this, it has the boat-shaped neckline. Uh, full sleeves, long sleeves. It's very effective on. Oh, yes. they were stuck in a pub but not a plane. I was just going to say if they went through all of that um, booze and cigarettes you know on on the plane journey what a party. What a 62 party 62 bottles of whiskey. Mother <laughs> of God. <laughs> Only 12 cans of Guinness. Yes. Yeah, Six yeah. packets of sweets. I don't think I've ever sugars. seen anyone drinking a Guinness on a plane. Yes. Do you know what really alarmed me? Soup. Soup and sugar On a bowls. plane. Sugar bowls. Oh, yeah. One bit of turbulence. <laughs> yeah. <It's a> disaster. <laughs> and a glass jug as well. Wow. Yeah. That's absolutely incredible. Yeah. And what do you think about the $21 sweater? I was thinking in night, but this was in the 1950s. That's a lot of money. It's yeah. An awful lot of money. I mean, yeah. cash, I, I was thinking about buying someone a pair of cashmere socks for this Christmas. Yeah. And then I saw the price of them oh, and I was crazy. like, I'm sorry, nobody mm -hmm. is spending uh, yeah. 50 euro on a pair of socks. But interesting that she was trying to flog a boat 
neck shaped yes. um, <laughs> a, a jumper um, to a, to a man because it, it's hard. It's a hard shape to wear, and I, I don't <laughs> see it particularly. And on she a said man it was either. very effective. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he had nice <laughs> collarbones or something. I don't know. Yeah. And the key ring with the watch on it as well. No, because I think it's a calendar as well. Uh, yeah, very useful, and of course a reminder of your car after <laughs> it's been stolen. Wow, flying was a amazing. whole different experience, wasn't well, it? it Honestly, even their voices were quite glamorous, yes. weren't they? So, you know, I, I, I hearken back to those mm. times. Was that when you wore your Sunday best on the plane? Wasn't that those days? Yeah, you got really dressed you know, up. Drinking and your smoked on the plane. Eating your soup, smoking your cigarettes. Yeah, you know, it was like glamour. Yeah. Ugh. Wow. What a beautiful place I have found in this place That is circling all around the sun What a beautiful dream That could flash on the screen In a blink of an eye And be gone from me Soft and sweet Let me hold it close And keep it here with me And one day we will die And our ashes will fly From the aeroplane over the sea But for now we are young Let us lay in the sun And count every beautiful thing we can see Love to be in the arms of all Keeping it with me It's been quite a whirlwind on this festive Sure It Was Better. We've heard everything from Noel Purcell talking about his lucky lumps, Ian Dempsey quizzing children about Super Striker, the seeding resentment towards sea swimmers goes back at least six decades, and hitchhikers got very bad press. So it's that time of the programme where our panel of Jules Call, Pauline McLean and Emer McLeisett have to make a decision. They have to decide whether it was better back then based on the clips they've been listening to. 
today. So what do we think? Was it better or worse back back in these days, the 50s, 60s into the 70s? Oh, 50-50, I guess. I suppose we now know about the dangers of the sun lamps. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. Flying is a whole different experience. Imagine getting off the plane and the smell of cigarettes. Yeah, no. but also there is the glamour of being on the plane. And I do miss that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I have to say I am 100% it was better then. Yeah. I wouldn't be a 50-50 at all, Jules. I, I don't think there was a single thing in there that I didn't love hearing <laughs> <laughs> and wanted to experience. Even um, Professor Michael Fogarty was saying, yes, the women should be allowed yes, to work yes, and yes. be made. Yeah, And I could have had a penny cigarette um, um, earlier today um, if I was living back then. <laughs> I'm, inc- I'm inclined to kind of agree with you, Pauline. There was yeah. nothing there that really... I mean, I would have loved listening to Paparama. I would have loved getting free lifts from hitchhikers. I mean, taxi fares are astronomical these days. And on the radio, you could have voted for the best European pop disc of 1981, for instance. You know, so uh, look, all of those. I'm sorry. Yes, I, I want to be there. It was better. And I guess the only thing that is better now is the fact that we have dry ropes. Mm, very uh, true. If there is the one thing, that's it. <laughs> Thanks so much to my festive panel of Pauline, Jules and Emer. Join me again for Sure It Was Better on New Year's Eve when we figure out if it was better or if it was worse back then during the festive season. It was certainly worse for the Wren. Christmas Day, a quiet day at home with memories and stories and family reunion. St. Stephen's Day, a day of sport and frolic, hunting the fox and going out with the Wren boys. And the Wren, the king of all boars, St. Stephen's Day was caught in the forest. Although he was little, his honour was great. Jump up, my lads, and give us a treat. As I went out to kill an all, I met the Wren upon the wall. Up at me wattle and knocked him down and brought him into Carrick Town. See you on New Year's Eve. That was Shirt Was Better, which was devised and produced by Will Hannafin. And there'll be another festive edition on New Year's Eve. Christmas on RTE Radio 1. Dear Santa, I hope you are well. For Christmas, I would like a selection box, a doll's clothes, surprises in boxes, I forgot that one, surprises in boxes, telephone set, telephone set, and a big teddy bear. And I think that was all. And the rest, and the rest in the bottles will be surprises. What are the what are what are surprises in the bottles? Ah, the things that you don't know what they are. Mm. Oh, I used to never get them. I used to get a few, but I never had them in boxes. Mm. I said and boxes. I said it should have said in boxes. Mm. Mm. And will he bring you what what you asked for? Do you think? I think he will. Mm. I don't know exactly. Might or mightn't. Well, some Christmases I get what I want and some Christmases I don't. Well, I'm not disappointed I'm dad to get any. It's <laughs> <laughs> better to get any than none. Yeah, just so. Sometimes you get dresses of scent and shoes and dents and fun things. I, I think he'll bring something anyway. How does he know to bring the stuff, do you think? I don't know. Exactly, I don't know. Maybe he's listening, I don't know. He might be listening, he might have a radio. Some kind of radio, I'm not sure. Hmm. Well, what about the reindeer? Do you think he still uses them? I think he does. Well, he can't get any other way, but I don't think he comes down the chimney. Can you see the fire might be on? Oh, and yeah. he can't come in through our chimney, our thing. Well, see, if we get a big pillowcase, maybe he comes in. He has, a, you know, those keys that open anything. I think Kevin Cabin's one of them, Greg Doyle says. He might have one, doesn't he? he? might get in that place. And then he, he, when I get them, I had it in a big pillowcase. Mm. And I 
like a lot of things hanging out to the end of the thing or push up the bed. He was a big thing. When I was down the north, me and Vivian were sleeping together and we woke up in the morning and the Billy gave something and we emptied them all out and I got such a great surprise. I thought it was great. And that's the time I got my, you know, that time going to the house. I say, that's the time I got her. The last one was the last one. No, it wasn't the last one, but it was before the last one. That was the time I got her. So I thought it was just great. A peek back into the archives there with a special report from Newsbeat from 1967, where a young girl was chatting with reporter Frank Hall.